and a half. Anything before that is a short sermon. Got it? Um, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with me this morning. Help me to uh, bring out your word. Help me to unpack your, your truths. Help me to um, speak to the places in people's hearts this morning that are, that are uh, just in need of hearing from you, Lord God. I pray that the, the hard and rocky places would be broken and that uh, good soil would be found underneath. And, and Lord God, that you would uh, um, just pick the rocks out of the hearts and lives of the people who are here. Um, make space for your word to take root and to grow. Um, I pray that uh, you'd be with me, that I wouldn't get in the way of that, uh, that your message, that your truth, that your word would um, be all that all that is brought out today, all that's um, heard, all that's understood, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, so we are uh, doing a uh, text from Acts again this morning, and and it's, uh, so preaching narrative is hard for a couple of reasons, because it's not instructional, and so you got to look for things in the text, and not every passage is easy. And I, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time chewing on this one, and uh, I, at the end of the day, what I walked away with was this idea that I never, like Paul isn't human when I read him. I don't know if that makes sense. You ever encounter somebody that like no matter what you do in relation to them, they seem a little like Superman? Or, you know, too perfect for words. You know, I, I, uh, I, I remember in high school I would meet these, these people who just seemed perfect and they were pretty or handsome or athletic or smart and it just seemed like nothing would ever go wrong and they probably never even, you know, never even used the bathroom. They were so perfect. You know what I'm talking about? And like Paul lands in that category in my world where you read him and he always seems to have the right answer. And he always seems to, to be courageous and to endure and to um, stand firm under, under difficulty and everything else. And, and as I dive into that, I wanted to talk, uh, before I get to Paul, I wanted to talk about a guy named Audie Murphy. That is not Eddie Murphy. They are distinct people. Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live in more than a dozen really bad movies. Um, Audie Murphy was in quite a few movies as well. Uh, he actually was the most decorated American soldier in World War II. Uh, Audie Murphy won every award that was offered by the United States military during his time of service, right? And then he went on and he made movies and wrote songs and everything. I mean, like, like he was larger than life. And almost no one here is old enough to know much about him. Uh, from first-hand experience, except maybe Terry, uh, and Glenn, maybe, probably Glenn. <laughs> anyway, so Audie Murphy, you start reading about his exploits. He he falsified his papers to enter the army at the beginning of World War II, like because he was underage and he faked being 18 so he could join the military. And and some of the stories about him, like. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor for single-handedly holding off, like, like a, a small army of Germans by himself. And then he led a counterattack wounded without any ammunition. I mean, you start reading about what he would do, like charging into enemy fire and, and things like that. And it's, it's overwhelming. And he almost feels like not a person when you read about him. He is, he is a real 
honest-to-goodness action hero that was then in movies and more or less the first real action hero to be in a movie. And it's incredible. Um, but I, I was reading a, some quotes from this guy this morning um, and a couple of lines that stood out to me. Um, I never moved into combat without having the feeling of a cold hand reaching into my guts and twisting them into knots. Another quote, I was scared before every battle. That old instinct of self-preservation is a pretty basic thing. But while the action was going on, some part of my mind shut off and my training and discipline took over. I did what I had to do. People are very quick to ridicule others for showing fear. But we rarely know the secret springboards behind human action. The man who shows great fear today may be tomorrow's heroes. Who are we to judge? Uh, I think this is the, the favorite one and the one I want to kind of springboard off of. Loyalty to your comrades, when you come right down to it, has more to do with bravery in battle than even patriotism does. You may want to be brave, but your spirit can desert you when things really get rough. Only you find you can't let your comrades down, and in the pinch, you can't let you down, or they can't let you down either. Um, so why am I quoting uh, Audie Murphy? Why am I starting there? Um, because I, I think um, it's easy to look at idealized versions of people and to turn them into not people to turn them into sort of plastic representation of people or like action figures almost. And to forget that these were like real life people who did real life difficult things. And, and in particular, that last quote uh, made me think of a, a line from C.S. Lewis uh, in The Way to Glory. He's talking about um, war and pacifism and Christians' participation in World War II. And he said that no man, and I'm paraphrasing, no man goes into battle because he hates his enemy. He goes into battle because he loves what's behind him and will give anything to protect it. Um, as we dive into Paul here, it is, or into Acts and Paul's exploits in Corinth, it's one of the few instances where I think you get a little bit of a crack in the scenery and you get to see the fact that Paul might not be perfect, right? And I think, I think there's a hint there and we're going we're gonna to look at it and we're going to talk about it. But I understand, like, as we look at Paul, as we, I mean, Peter is obvious, like, you read the story of Peter, and Peter is all about messing up and saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and, like, ready, fire, aim, and all that. I mean, like, like you look at guys like David, and you look at guys like Isaiah or Elijah, and these were men who were larger than life, but not perfect. But real human, that, that was, thanks for catching the obscure joke I didn't realize I had made. Um, <laughs> The, the, we're going to look at Paul and we're going to talk about Paul as a person. We're going to talk about us as people and what God has for us. So let's just jump right in. Um, we are in Acts chapter 18. If you want to look it up in the Bible in front of you, uh, that would be good. It'll be on the screen. Main point as we go into this, the big overarching point is in the middle of the challenges and the setbacks of following Christ. And there are plenty, right? There are a lot of difficult things associated with dealing with God, with with following him, with obeying him, with running contra or contrary to what the world calls us to do or what our flesh wants us to do or our doubts or our fears or whatever, we have this reassurance that like the same Savior, the same Jesus who died for us, who was beaten and whipped and, and broken and bled 
for us would not abandon us. And I'm going to try and come back to this idea over and over again. Uh, but understand, this whole message is about the, you know, if Christ died to buy you out of slavery to sin, if Christ died to bring you back to life, the idea that Christ would abandon you ever is just crazy. Um, but I think it's easy to have. Now, follow me here. Um, our, as we dive into the text, the first big idea, we're going to be in this passage here. Um, having been established in Corinth, like Paul is about to set about preaching the word. And this is a little bit of review, but understand it's a review because um, the context is important. So Paul sets about the work of preaching the gospel to the community he's in. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went, on, went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned with the synagogue and in the synagogue and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, real fast, you know, this is last week's message. We talked about this idea that Paul arrives in Corinth and God has lined up everything for him to be there to do the work that he's going to do, to do it in a way that is like preferable to the community he's dealing with, like. Everything is set. The stage is set for him to do big stuff. And it's awesome, right? Like, like Paul walks in the door and there's a place to stay and work to do and, you know, fellow believers to support him and, and everything, like everything is set for him. And God has lined this up and it's no accident. Um, the, these two, uh, these two believers, by the way, had just recently been kicked out of Rome because they, like Jews and Christians were arguing and they basically like kicked them all out of the city and these guys came here and they ran into Paul. Like God lines up all of our paths to cross where they need to cross. Um, so second big idea as we go forward, right? God further provided for the work of ministry through the support of other churches, allowing Paul not to be a burden to the new church he established. This matters, and we talked about this briefly last week. There were philosophers whose job it was to sort of wander around, job it was, uh, to sort of wander around and speak publicly and to make money. And they were, um, the cynics was the name of the group. And like Paul shows up in an area where people are used to being fleeced by these cynics, you know, are like, oh, well, you're doing this great talk for me and I'm really inspired. What do you want? Right? Paul is able to do ministry and not take money. And that becomes a major hinge in his argument against the like super apostles, as he calls them, the heretics that move into Corinth later and sort of corrupt the church. And so Paul is put in a position where, like beyond the initial provision, God provides even more to make it so that he is able to do the ministry and like to do it in such a way that later he's got a strong argument in his like in his hand. You, you know what I mean? Like I. I think uh, a lot of people here play Pinochle. And if you've got that, the Joker, right? No? I don't, I, I'm bad at Pinochle. I don't like playing it. It's, the, it's an ace or two. Which one is it? I think your terminology is good. It's like holding one of the two big trump cards, right? There you go. And, like, knowing it's there and knowing that at any moment you can unleash it, right? Only in Paul's case, he's holding it the whole time, and it's not until he needs it he realizes he's got it. And so Paul is able to sort of hold his trump back 
to, to you know, to do this thing in a way that, that's powerful. Um, and it's because God provided before the time came. So when Timothy, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now we find out in the letters that the church in Macedonia actually provided support. And so Paul never took support from the church in Corinth. And he made it a point never to take their money or to support them. And actually, for the most part, even like just a couple of guys that were converted, he didn't baptize any of them, which is weird because you'd think that'd be most of what Paul would do, like bring in new believers, baptize them, and disciple them. But he doesn't do any of that. And later on, we find out that they argue about who baptized who. Um, and, and Paul's able to say, thank God I didn't baptize any of you people, except for that guy and that guy and that guy. And that's it. Um, but God lines all of this up and he provides for Paul years before he knows he even needs it. Um, third point here, right? Like as we work through this little bit of text, Paul's words and actions are prophetic, like word action moments. Um, and they're in harmony with Old Testament examples. What he's about to do in the text is bold and kind of in your face and kind of like for a Jewish audience, it would be obvious and it would be kind of insulting. Right. And by kind of, I mean deeply. Um, so it's this bold mood that they would have gotten right away. Watch this. So Paul is there. He's preaching in the in the synagogue. He's got this audience. He's talking about Jesus as the Messiah. Um, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he's gone to them. They start becoming abusive. It, it's not clear what that means, but uh, Paul put up with a lot generally. And so it seems like it was probably enough to prompt Paul to stand up and say, he shakes his clothes, right? They wore robes, by the way. It's not like, um, you know, so he shakes out his robes and he says, this is on you now. You guys have brought this on yourself. God's judgment is on you because you refuse to listen. Um, I've done everything I can. Now, my first read of this, all I could think of was Pilate washing his hands, right? Um, and saying, well, my, my hands are innocent of this man's blood, right? It's actually more likely a reference to Nehemiah, who in the middle of everything, they're encountering difficulty, and he stands up. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this time, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised God, and the people did as they had promised. Um, what happened was Nehemiah is talking to him. He shakes out his clothes. And he says, just like that is what God's going to do to you. But this had become a common thing amongst Jews. If they had an issue with each other, they would shake out their robes because there would be pockets, right? Like I hear women talk about how important dresses with pockets are. It's like almost a sacrament. Um, they would have little pockets and corners and places to hide snacks and things like that. And they would shake out their robes as a demonstration that I've done away with everything I've got. I'm done with this. Uh, a slightly more uh, 
well-known version of this is, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. Uh, this is the words of Christ. He's talking about, listen, if you go somewhere and you preach and they don't listen, shake off your dust. And it's sort of a prophetic speech act. And it's saying, I've done everything I can. This is on you. Um, I, I want to make an interesting kind of like point here because it reads as in your face, but there's a second half to this where Paul says, guys, I'm trying and you're not working with me here. I uh, suspect every parent in the room has had an instance where their child has dug in and dug into the point of self-destruction, right? Where you're looking at them and you're saying you're doing something that is going to wreck you. Do you understand what is coming, right? Do you understand, like, how bad this is going to be? But I'll tell you what, it's on you. Your blood is on your own head, and I really want to say that to my kids sometimes. All right, fine, go get hurt, but your blood is on your own head. Shake out my pants at you. Um, So Paul cares about these people. He isn't there preaching the gospel out of spite. He's not there preaching the gospel because he's getting anything out of it, because he's clearly not. Um, He's doing it because he loves these people. And I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis saying, no man goes into war to fight an enemy because he hates the enemy. He does it because he loves what's behind him. Paul is there day after day preaching to these Jewish folks because he loves them, because he desires to bring them to Christ. And he actually says outright at one point in one of his letters, I would gladly be cursed myself. I gladly take damnation if I could trade my own soul for the souls of the Jewish people. Like, he loves these people, and they won't listen. And so he shakes out his clothes, and he walks away. And it had to be heartbreaking. So heartbreaking, he doesn't go very far. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Titius Justice. I have no idea how to say that right. I deeply apologize. A worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul and believed were baptized, or heard Paul, believed, and were baptized. So um, what happens is Paul goes next door. And there's a lot of discussion in different documents about, like, well, why on earth would Paul have just gone next door? Is he being passive-aggressive? Maybe. But more likely, he wanted to be close at hand because he didn't want to leave him that far, Right? Um, he didn't want to leave them completely to their own devices. He doesn't want them cursed and their blood on their own head. He wants to help them, but they're not listening. So Paul goes right next door, and the very first thing that happens is the guy who's head of the local synagogue converts. Had to make some friends there, right? Uh, this guy turns up later. He is not a one-off character, um, but we're not going to talk about him. So Paul is actually experiencing some success. Frustration, but success. There are Jewish people being converted, the people he's chasing after. There are other people in Corinth believing. There's a church becoming established. And in fact, again, I think I said this last week, the church likely grew large enough that there were multiple church bodies in the community. Like, this is a huge undertaking for Paul. Um, so despite these successes, now watch this, because up until this point, we've got maybe some frustration, right? But we've got church growth, we got success, we got God lining up the lives of a bunch of people to support Paul. We've got where God is blessing the ministry through outside support. We have where Paul is preaching the gospel and people are hearing and coming to faith. He's baptizing a few people and like this stuff is taking place and he's kind of winning, right? 
But despite that, despite the progress um, and signs that God is in his favor, God feels it necessary to show up in a dream and reassure Paul um, in the work he's doing. So this is 9 to 11. This is the last little bit from uh, this particular uh, segment of Acts that we're going to go through. Uh, One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So, there are a couple of possibilities here. Uh, First off, it may be the case that Paul is considering leaving because he sees difficulty brewing, and there's going to be a trial in next week's passage, right? And it's a weird trial, and I wanted to do it this week, but it's just too much, and I, I, I didn't see how I was going to be able to. Um, so God comes to him in a dream and says, hey, don't be afraid, don't worry, don't doubt, don't prepare to run, don't anything, dig in and do the work, right? Now, action hero Paul, like the Paul who says, hey, if I get whipped, then I get to experience what Jesus experienced. Hey, if I'm hungry or in thirst, I'm hungry and in thirst for the Lord. Those things sound amazing, right? Paul is the spiritual leader evangelist who is like Audie Murphy in the pictures with every medal hanging down his shirt, right? And he'd say, all of this stuff is rubbish for the opportunity to know Jesus. Like he is out there doing the work and he is awesome and you never see a crack in the facade. Except I would suggest that this might suggest, it might be an indication that sometimes Paul got afraid. Right? Like, I think sometimes Paul looked at what was coming and said, oh, uh, I'm not real excited about this. Or, oh, no, what's going to happen now? Or, why, Lord? Why me? I mean, I think I'd say that more than once, right? Um, And he stays there. He never moves on. He stays 18 months. He preaches. He teaches. He establishes a church. He does all this work. He does not. We have no recording of God saying, Paul, don't be afraid. No one will touch you. And Paul saying, I wasn't afraid. Let me do my job. Right? This happened for a reason. But Paul holds something back out of this. Like, we don't know exactly what's happening. We know that Paul, like, at different points, he experiences difficulty. And that sometimes he was frustrated. And we know these things, like, because he hints at them. But Paul never writes a whole essay about, like, wow, I got really depressed. I got really scared. I was not happy with what God was asking me to do. None of that stuff. Like, we just don't ever see it. Um, But... If you back up, because it's easy to look at scriptural characters, and it's one of the things that makes Christianity unique is most of our heroes are not perfect, right? We're going to go through a few of these. Jonah, right? Jonah of great faith, who when God said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, I need you to go warn them. Jonah says, absolutely not. I hate those guys. Destroy them. (laughs) Come on, go. Go warn them. If I warn them, they'll probably repent and you won't kill them because that's just how you are. So I'm not doing it. What? But again, Jonah is frequently listed as a hero of the faith. And when God doesn't destroy Nineveh, he sits on a hill and he complains about it. See, God, I knew you'd do this. Why didn't you kill these guys I didn't like? Elijah. 
And honestly, Elijah's story is this, this like sequence of events is one of my favorites in the scriptures where like Elijah goes out and he challenges the prophets of Baal, like Baal, the fire God, let's sacrifice with fire. And you call on your God to build a fire and I'll call on my God. And he dumps water. Elijah dumps water all over his sacrifice. And he watches the prophets of Baal, like celebrating and cutting themselves. And, and he makes fun of them. Hey, maybe Baal's on the toilet. Why don't you yell a little louder? <laughs> He's probably napping. And then like after dumping hundreds of gallons of water in the desert, which is quite an ostentatious display, on his sacrifice and on his wood, creating a moat around it, he kneels down and he prays for about 30 seconds and a giant fireball shows up and wipes out all the water and the sacrifice and everything else. And you got to say, man, that is pyrotechnics. That is God answering in a big, awesome, incredible way. And the people are driven. Like they get up and they, they execute the, the prophets of Baal. And they say, we're going back to, the, to our God. And literally a chapter later, like within days, Elijah is running for his life in the desert, crying. Like, like exhausted and weeping. And oh, God, why would you put me in this position? Like God just dropped a fireball for you. What do you want? But he ran away afraid and people were after him to take his life and he hid in the mountains in a cave. And ultimately what God said was, trust me, I got this. You're not the only one. This is my deal. But Elijah was scared and he was depressed and he was fearful the day after about the biggest victory he was ever going to get in his lifetime. We look at Jeremiah, who's first calling. He stands up and he says, all right, God, I am way too young for this work, and I'm really bad at speaking to people. No, I'm not going. Nope, not a chance. And then you read about the guy's life. He's, like, thrown in prison. Like, they dumped him in a well once just to get him to shut up. Like, oh, my gosh. But the first thing he said was, God, I am not your man. Don't send me. Elijah, who did say, here I am, send me, send me, was also the guy who said, yeah, I'm way too sinful. You can't send me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I'm undone if I've seen God. And God cleans him. Moses, uh, standing before Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh doubled the workload. And Moses turns around and says, God, what is your deal? Why did you send me to screw up these people's lives even worse? Why would you do this? I, it's almost impossible to find instances where God's heroes don't drop the ball or doubt or struggle or, or fear. And there, it's a natural part of the faith. Like, and I'm not saying that it's something we should wallow in. Let me get to this. But understand, as people, you will doubt and you will struggle and you will feel depressed. You'll have successes and you'll see God do good things. And then the next day you'll find yourself spiritually flat or empty, and you'll think, where are you, God? Right? Am I the only one who's experienced this? Just me. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Um, Another hint from Paul. This is in a letter to Corinth. Uh, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardship and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Um, mind you, this is after Paul showed up in Corinth and they chased him out of town, humiliating him, right? Like that's what the sequence of the letter. He goes to Corinth, these people who love him, who he established this church, he's friends with all of them, and they mock him and chase him out of town, kick him out. And then he sends one of his representatives and they kick that guy out. And then he sends Titus, who is tough, and Titus sets him in order. Um, he says to him, listen, guys, in my weakness, I ask for God to just fix this. Help me. Get me over this. He doesn't immediately run to when I am weak, then I am strong. I think Paul agonized. And I think Paul acknowledges that he is constantly worried about the church and about the believers. He mourns over the people who are like like the Jewish people who don't know Christ, and he, he's terrified for their eternity. Like Paul is this guy who is passionate about what he's passionate about, but I don't think he's perfect, and I don't think he's a plastic action hero. I think Paul laid in that bed, whatever night it was in Corinth, and God came to him and said, I get it, but don't worry, I'm with you. Keep doing the work, keep doing the work, keep doing the work. There are some days I would love to have that. But I get to read about Paul doing it, I guess. So what's behind the text? First off, like, is this idea, I said it before, I think doubt and weariness and sadness and fear, I think these are going to be a natural part of being a believer. I think because we're human, because we have flesh, because we experience loss, because we experience death, because we get frustrated, because we get hurt, all of it is a part of it. Now, the big trick to that is when it comes to such things, like we can choose to wear them like a suit and soak in them, right? One of my very favorite things in the world is the simplest of pleasures when my beautiful wife puts brand new bed sheets on the bed that are clean and unused. And I don't know what's happened, and I slide into bed, and the feeling of brand new sheets is like, a little slice of heaven. Is that, anybody else? No? Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> also, kudos on getting TJ to do laundry. Uh, <laughs> we can choose to slide into that feeling, into that fear, into the doubt, into the depression, into the struggle, and say, this is comfortable enough, I'm going to stay here. And I suspect Paul could have turned to God and said, hey, get out of here. I'm enjoying this. Let me, let me be depressed for a little while. Right? Let me be grouchy. I do that sometimes. Leave me alone. I want to be grouchy. But God deals with that by coming to us. He, the, the trick to all of it is never to soak in it, never to like die in that place. Doubt is often the result of viewing the world through its own glasses. Now, I'm going to read a chunk of James. I might skip over part of it. Uh, we'll see how much I do. Uh, first off, I'm going to read verse 6, okay? But when you ask, you must believe. Oh, there. But, sorry, techno error. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I have read that verse so many times, and I've said, so wait a minute. If I have a doubt, if I struggle with something, I just have to say, nope, I'm not going to doubt anymore. 
right? Because in isolation, that's what that text seems to say. The problem is it's not what it's saying. It is and it isn't. Um, because it misses part of the larger point. So we're going to back up and we're going to look at it in context. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Pause half a second. The testing of your faith makes it strong in the same way that picking up heavy weights and testing your muscles against them makes them stronger. And the more you do it, the stronger and bigger they get, right? And so the more you test your strength, your faith, your perseverance against difficulty, the more you are capable of doing. And it's actually kind of amazing. It is working out for the soul spiritually. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be maturing and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave in the sea being tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you are in a spot where life is hard and difficult and you look and you say, how can God do this? Or what is God up to? Or how do I trust him in this moment? Stop. Hit the brakes. Acknowledge the fact that you're doubting. It is a thing that will happen to you because you are human. And then say, I'm either going to trust God in this moment of doubt or I'm going to wear it. I'm going to lay in it like comfortable bed sheets that are just mainly miserable. Um, Instead, we're to put things aside and say, God, I don't understand what's going on here. I lack the wisdom to see your hand at work. Open my eyes. Right? I mean, it makes sense that the sentences are connected. So if I encounter difficulty, I ask God for understanding and wisdom. Help me to lean on you and see things from your perspective. Help me to look at the world. Because there are a lot of people who know stuff but can't look at the world from God's perspective. And it ends up making them foolish. And I'm 80% of the time, that's me. Um, go on from there. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Again, does this sound counterintuitive? If you're poor and have no influence and nobody listens to you, take pride in the fact that you're in a high position in God's kingdom. Meaning, look at the world through God-colored glasses, not the garbage-colored glasses you're looking through at the moment. Because when you look, God says, those who are lowly, those who serve, those who are humble, those who are not collecting up their reward and their recognition now, they're collecting their treasure in heaven. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. So if you are wealthy, if you are rich and you are humiliated, take pride in it since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, and the blossoms fail, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Meaning, nobody lives forever. And so if you're wealthy, look at your life and say, this life and this stuff I have is temporary. Only God has control. And ultimately, only before God will I answer. Like, only before God will I be judged. And I need to take that part seriously. That's wisdom. Wisdom is not looking at the world through our glasses. And so when Paul is told, hey, don't be afraid, don't worry, just keep doing your job, he's being given a tip of wisdom, right? Look at the world through my glasses. You're doing my job. Do what you're going to do. I'll take care of you. I got you. 
It's not don't doubt. It is try to see things from God's perspective. Try to step out of your place and stand in his. And look at this. All of this, James. Go read James chapter 1, please. And you will understand there is so much there because it is a whole chunk of text about, guys, life is difficult, being poor is hard, having trials, being arrested, being accused, being mistreated, looking at life and feeling hopeless, struggling, stumbling, screwing up. All of that stuff is a part of life. And as you endure it, as you face it, as you stare it down, if you stare it down through Christ's eyes, knowing that the Jesus who died for me the God who would sacrifice his son to save me from my sins. That one ain't going to abandon me. Be wise in his eyes and not in your own. If I'm poor, I'm poor because God chose it for me. I can work hard to fix my situation, but I shouldn't complain too much because I'm where God wants me to be. The key to overcoming this ultimately is to learn to view things through Christ's eyes. And I'm going to quote one of the most misquoted passages in Scripture, and I'm going to end on this. This is Paul writing. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever circumstances. I know that it is, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Um, verse 13 is often misquoted. You see it on the wall in gym. I can, in gyms, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can bench press 800 pounds. I can't. I guess if God wants to give me miraculous strength, he can. He probably isn't going to. He gave me good looks instead. Kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just seeing who's awake. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> This passage is not about God will give me some miraculous gift all the time. It is, I can go through anything. And as long as I understand that God is in charge, that he orders my path, that he selected my challenges, that everything is in his control. And when I find myself doubting, how can God be there if I'm experiencing this? I can say, maybe God is there and this experience is for a reason. Maybe this experience is a part of how I'll glorify him. And so I need to look at this through his eyes. Maybe this loss, maybe this, this disconnect in my understanding of the world, maybe my moment of fear, whatever it is, If this is God's deal, then I'll endure it. And I'll endure it with a smile on my face because I can do anything because he's carrying me through it. My children can do all things when dad is on their side, right? You know, I I want to, it's my example. I've used it a million times. My daughter and the five-gallon water bottles, she'd move them around and play with them. But she couldn't move them herself because she was like this big. And they still weigh more than she does. Um... But if she wanted to move it, she just had to ask me and I'd help her. Ultimately, this is the kind of all things. I can endure persecution. I can overcome doubt. I can face misery. I can, like, consume my own pain and drink it all down. And as long as Christ is carrying me through it, then I can endure it. What do we do with Paul's passage? Well... Most of us will not get a vision. Sorry, guys. But we got Paul's vision. We got Paul's experience. Um, And we have the assurance that Christ loves us no matter what. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't wander off. We have this. And this is enough.
And so when we experience struggle, when we experience doubt, when we look and say, how can God, or do I really know that God, we can back up and say, God, help me overcome this. Help me to see it through your eyes. Sometimes this means finding other people to stand in his place and speak for him, to help us carry it. Sometimes wisdom comes from the guy next to you, or from your father, or from your grandparents, or from your pastor, but you'll probably find a better one. Um, like, God will give it to you. Sometimes all we need to endure is understanding. I'm going to close in prayer. And my challenge for you today is, like, as you go out into the world, like, like, what's Christ calling you to do with the life he's given you? And what are you holding back because of your doubt or your fear or your worry, whether it's in the midst of success or loss? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to trust that the Christ who died for us the new life that we live in him, that you would care for us no matter what. You're not promising us a rose garden or, or um, you know, a lottery winning or whatever, but you're promising to carry us through it and to make us more and more like you. Father, God, the greatest treasure to receive, to, to acquire in life is intimate relationship with you. I pray that the folks who are here today would come to know you more intimately and more closely by learning to look at you, learning to look at their life and their circumstance through Christ's colored glasses. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.